0: Thanks, Sandy. Good to have that reading before us. If you've got that open, it'd be great to keep that there. Um, That's going to be where we're um, spending the majority of our time tonight, uh, in Matthew 13. So that'd be great. Uh, I I just realized, I don't think I introduced myself when I stood up. I'm the lead pastor here. My name's Stuart Starr. Great to have you uh, with us. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into um, this passage that's before us as we continue our series, Jesus Is. And tonight we're looking at Jesus Is Irrelevant. So I'll see if I can make a case for that. Let's pray for God's help. The opposite, perhaps, actually. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you're present here. Thank you for the beautiful seed of your word that's been read. I pray now, Father, that you would help by your Holy Spirit, understanding and insight to happen. Unclog our ears, open our spiritual eyes, Father, that we might understand. we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, yeah, we'll go for the relevant one, is that right? Excellent. So we're in this series, Jesus Is, and we're getting you to think, how would I answer that question, and how might the people around me answer that question? So if we were to say to you, Jesus is, how would you finish that sentence? And we're saying tonight, some people might answer it uh, this way, Jesus is irrelevant. Our process will be, we'll take a walk in the shoes of that worldview, we're going to have a look at what the Bible has to say, and then we'll work hard at thinking, if that's true, then what do we do with what we learn? Okay, so let's start off by having a bit of a walk in this worldview, which is always a risky thing to do, but I'll see if I can have a go at it. So if you were to answer Jesus is irrelevant, uh, I think there's two broad categories of thought here. There's a way that you can say Jesus is irrelevant, which is passive, and a way that you can say Jesus is irrelevant, which is active. Let let me see if I can explain. You say, hey, uh," someone says, what did you get up to on the weekend? And you tell them boldly, um, I did X, Y, and Z, and I went to church at night. Good, good work for not editing. Okay? And they go, church, why would you bother? Right? What do you say next? Their, their world is, going to church is a hassle. Why would you bother? Jesus is irrelevant, not because I'm really carefully thought through on all this, but just, I don't know, I, I can't see any reason why you'd do that. It's passive, but it's saying Jesus is irrelevant. Why would you bother? Another kind of flip side of this, I think, which is, um, I'm too busy. You go to church, whatever, I'm I'm too busy for all that stuff, okay? I don't need any of that Jesus stuff in my life. It's an interesting thing to say, though, because I think everybody's busy, and we're never too busy for the things that matter, okay? We're never too busy for the things that matter. We might be feeling busy for the other things that we have to fit around the things that matter, but we're never too busy for the things, that matter. And so uh, I'm too busy, I think kind of we could unpack it a little bit. I'm too busy worshipping at my other temples, kids sport, Bunnings and my pillow. Okay, uh, if you're into kids sport and that's your thing, that's the life stage you're up to, it is a all-consuming beast. Um, Bunnings, my home renos need my attention. Uh, that bathroom is going to be a bit of a hassle until we've got all the tiles done or whatever. Um, so we go to Bunnings. Or my pillow, there's some of us that uh, work shifts that have only maybe one day a week where you have off. And look, Saturday morning, uh, Sunday morning sorry, is actually pretty precious. And so you say, actually, look, I'm too busy really means, look, I've got to get some serious time in on my pillow, dropping some Zeds But it's not really active. It's not really rejecting Jesus. It's just saying, I have no space in my life or need in my life. There's a flip side though. There's an active side. The active side might be saying, actually, I'm feeling really strong. Okay, I'm doing great. Jesus I don't have any need for that hypothesis, okay? I'm doing awesomely and I'm just crushing life on all fronts. I don't know who this is, but I, I don't have any I don't have any space for Jesus. I'm doing great. Secondly, I'm sort of at the opposite end, I'm feeling sinful. I kind of know in the back of my head I'm doing something wrong at the moment. And I know in that building with that group of people I'll be made to feel a bit icky about that, right? I'm I I don't I i don't have any time for that right so i'm feeling a little sinful maybe i've i have another solution so i'm I'm making my way through life without the need for jesus jesus is irrelevant because i'm following a different religious path maybe yeah i think that's a legitimate answer from our society you can meet someone who say i'm a committed buddhist or i'm following the the five pillars of islam now they're saying i don't need any jesus not because the whole category of religious stuff is taken out but they've got a different solution Jesus is irrelevant because I'm following a different religion. Another one might be, and I I think this one's a little bit more uh, widespread. Look, I'm steering this ship. I don't have any need of Jesus. All I know about him is that he might have a different idea for my life than I have. And at that point, we're going a different direction. I'm actively resisting having any Jesus in my life. I've got both hands on the wheel. I'm in charge. And I said this morning, uh, I shared an example this morning of my teenage angst experience of this. So I sort of became a Christian about year eight or year nine in high school. Okay, and um, as I went along, I got to year twelve. I remember sitting in uh, in a gathering of Christians, and the guy sitting at the front said, "Do you trust Jesus?" I remember sitting there a little bit smugly, going, "Yeah, of course I do. I do." "Do you trust Jesus?" I remember saying, "I think you just asked that, but the answer's still yes. Yes, I do. No problems." And then he said, "Do you trust Jesus with your HSC?" And I remember sitting there thinking, "Nah." Good moment, right? I was working really hard, studying really hard. I had my life sorted out. Jesus might stuff it up. Kids, if you're listening along, that's a wrong answer. But that's what I was thinking, okay? That's what, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking to myself, look, I've got this under control. Yeah, I've got Jesus. You've got a category in my life. But when you say, are you in control? Do you trust Jesus with, insert important thing here? My answer was, no. Will he really do good for me if I put this in his hands? Are you with me? I'm steering the ship. I don't need any Jesus. I want you to think about those active and passive categories again. I think that the passive one is just pure apathy. Okay? It's blobbing through life, if I can refine it as beautifully as that. It's just blobbing. You're going with the tide. There's nothing particularly antsy about it. It's just apathy Australia. I think that's most of us. Not in church, I hope. The active one is really interesting. I've been thinking about this a little bit. I think that the active one is moral before it's theological. It's moral before it's theological. Let me see if I can make the case for this, right? I know there's something happening here that's got a different set of morals to me. I'm I'm either comfortable living my life my own way because I'm in charge, or I've decided I'm I'm living my life in a way I know God would disagree with. Now because I disagree with what God's doing and I'm feeling okay with myself about this moral choice I've made, I'm going to build a construction that'll say why God doesn't exist or why I don't need him in my life. But it doesn't start with hard work with a pen and paper in a philosophy book or in the Bible, working out God and then concluding that it seems in- incompatible with my morals. We start with the morals, that's not going to jive with God, oh God's irrelevant. D- do you see? So we go from the morals to the theology, not from the theology to the morals, I think. I don't like what God's got to say, so I'm going to decide I don't like him, and after the fact, I'm going to construct a reason why he's wrong. But what is it about relevance anyway? Shouldn't we be concerned if it's actually right? I mean, relevance is such a thing, isn't it? Uh, uh, Here's a question for you. Is Jesus concerned with relevance? Is Jesus in heaven kicking around wondering about whether you think he's relevant or not? I don't think so. But it's funny, isn't it? Because the world will press relevance on us. Do they have relevant preaching there then? Is the Bible relevant for your life? And um, there's actually two churches I found online there called Relevant Faith Church and Relevant Church. So someone thinks this is really important, right? Okay. And the secret to success being relevant. Apparently, according to a little slide I found. Uh, on the internet how wonderful but here's the answer I, I don't think jesus is sweating it i don't think jesus is concerned if he's relevant at all i want to tell you two reasons why i don't think he's relevant uh, worried about being relevant um first of all the prohibitions uh, take take you to a house uh, jesus just raised a 12 year old girl from the dead if your job is to be relevant okay that's a pretty good start fantastic i'm raising the dead i think that has some cachet But then he says to the parents, don't tell anyone what happened here. let somebody tweet that. Somebody get a shot of the bed that's now empty and Instagram it. Let's get it up on the social things. Because we've got to get the news out, don't we? And here's Jesus, though, messing with our heads saying, don't tell anyone. He's hardly striving for relevance at that point, is he? And then there's the Parables. The parables aren't plain. You see, Jesus could have turned up and not spoken in parables. He could have said, Hello, everyone. I'm the Son of God. I'm the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 53. I am the one that you're looking for. I'm the Messiah. He didn't do that, did he? He spoke to them in these stories called parables. He didn't make it plain, and so I want to say to you, he could have been really clear, and he wasn't. And I think it's because he wasn't striving to be relevant in the sense of our kind of striving world today. So let's look at the Bible. Let's find out what Jesus is actually like. Why is he speaking to us in parables? Why do that? Have a look. That question is in verse thirteen. Why speak to us? in parables is what the um so uh mark uh so matthew uh 13 13 uh sorry uh 13 uh the disciples came to him and asked why do you speak to the people in parables and we might well ask the same question i want to give you four possible reasons why he speaks to them in parables number one is to raise intrigue that says in um in 13 uh verses two to three such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables. See, if I've got a huge crowd there, okay, they're all made up of different types and sorts of people. Jesus hops into the boat and he says, I've got to talk to this crowd. What am I going to do? I'm not going to talk to them plainly, I'm going to talk to them in parables. I want to intrigue them, I want to dangle the hook, I want to see who's interested in knowing more. And we actually see the second reason it's an invitation. So after the crowd's gone away, his disciples come to him and he says to them uh, in verse uh, 18, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. He doesn't speak to the whole crowd on the hill in the boat and he says, everybody, I just told you a story and now I'm going to tell you what it means. No, no, afterwards, small group. Hey guys, huddle in. Let me tell you what the parable of the sower means. It's an invitation to come closer and to seek out. And he wants to do two more things. I think he wants to reveal. There is a meaning behind the story. It's not just a farming story, there's a meaning behind it. He wants to reveal the meaning. And so we see that in, um, in verse 11. Uh, he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Jesus wanted to tell them the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He was actually actively trying to do that. He wanted to reveal, but he also wanted to conceal. He wanted to make sure that the people who weren't interested didn't get it. Now, does that mess with your head? He wanted to actively conceal it. Have a look at uh, the end there, but not to them, he says. And then in verse 12, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. That seems odd, doesn't it? For the guy who's desperate to be relevant... No, he's not trying to be relevant. He's trying to talk to people whose hearts are seeking. Incidentally, this is a good time to remind you. I'm going to have a Q&A at the end. So if on the way things aren't clear as we go through, write them down. We'll, we'll have your questions as we go. So what are parables? I want to suggest to you today that parables are two-level stories about reality. What that means is they've got a presenting level. Here's a story about something. And then they've got a reality level, which is what they're explaining, a kingdom of God level. So two-level stories, concealing the truth in the telling. In other words, when you listen, you don't get the truth of the kingdom, but unveiling it to seekers with additional help. Okay? So you can sit there, you can hear the kingdom of God explained in a parable, uh, sorry, told about in a parable, and not get anything until you come and find the teacher, and then he'll make it clear to you. And so parables are cryptic in public and made clear in private. That's interesting, isn't it? Cryptic in public, made clear in private. So let's have a look at a couple of them. There's some great parables in here, some really famous ones. Let's see what the farmer was intending to do in this parable. Have a look with me at uh, 13.3 and 8. He told them many things in parables saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. Verse 8, Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So here's the question. Why does a farmer sow a seed? What's he hoping to do? Grow stuff. It's a magical process, isn't it? You put seed in the ground, and it produces more seed, and if you're really good, guess what? It produces more seed than you put in. That is radical, isn't it? If, if I was going to say, if I lock a kitten in a cupboard, but that doesn't get very good, does it? Uh, if If, if If I find other things, if I put a brick in my garage, I'm not intending to come back three months later and find more bricks, yes? But wonderfully, the way that organic things work, I can throw seed and it'll not only grow itself, but it'll grow and produce more, that's amazing. So what's the farmer intending? The farmer is intending fruitful things. That's what's happening in this parable. For each of these parables, I want us to have a look at the points that are made in the story, and then we want to unpack what they mean. Point number one, in verse four, we can see that the seed can be snatched. Birds come and eat that that's dropped on the path. The seed can be snuffed out in verses five to six. Uh, they, get a, they get a little bit of growth, but then the sun comes up, and because they don't have much roots, uh, they, they wither. The, the seed can be smothered uh, in verse seven. You can see it grows up, but it gets choked by weeds and thorns. And then we see in verses 8 to 9, the seed can be superabundant, which is an S, so that's why it had to be superabundant. Um, it, it, can, it can multiply excessively, 160 or 30 times what was sown. All right, so what's the message? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. And, and I, I guess I, I'll go back a click. Um, I want you to know, although you know the parable of the sower really well, I'm guessing, most of you, right? If you don't know what it means, if Jesus doesn't explain to you, it's just a story about farming. Let that sink in for a second, right? If you hear this, then the message, the take home from people who were on the hill watching Jesus in the boat was, gee, guys, be careful where you chuck your seed. It doesn't work out very well when it's on the path, in the rocks. Do, do you get it? There's no kingdom communication there. It's a story about farming. Yeah? So, Jesus has to unveil the kingdom, and he does it in verses 18 to 23. Have a look with me. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root they last only a short time when trouble or persecutions come because of the word they quickly fall away verse 22 the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown see jesus is saying the message the secret under under the ground message is hear the word understand it and you will be faithful and fruitful that's the kingdom message in the parable of the sower and more than that is that it's a battle out there yeah three out of four seeds don't survive that's a fake statistic from the parable of the sower but 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 here's the thing right that here's the point right it's a battle out there it's an absolute battle when the word is spoken as it's being tonight the evil one persecution wealth and worries can stop the seed bearing its harvest it's a battle out there and jesus is saying we need to be very careful what we do with the word that is sown parable number two read a great story this week i think it was this week about uh, guatemala Anyone know where Guatemala is? Yep, where is it, mate? Yeah, yeah, top of South America, underneath Mexico in that kind of land bridge in between North and South America. Okay, there we go, Guatemala, fantastic. Why care? Uh, Great story, lots of jungle there, okay, lots of jungle. Somebody flew over the jungle in a drone with a laser. Now, how am I not excited about this story, okay? Drones, lasers, very, very cool. Okay, what they did was, as they went over the top of it, the laser pierces through the jungle, and what they found in Guatemala, was 6,000 Maya buildings that they hadn't found before. Absolutely incredible. In fact, some of the things that they thought were mountains were actually temples that no one had found before. Really incredible. So, when you go with this seeking desire, somebody figured out that maybe it's worth doing. They used this amazing tech and they found this incredible treasure that no one knew existed. How wonderful. Listen to Jesus' parable in chapter 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Simple. What are the points in this parable? What are the points? treasure well first of all treasure is immensely valuable okay so every, every time you find treasure it's really valuable that's good treasure is valuable it's hidden uh, now did you notice that he had to go and find it uh, it's like a treasure hidden in a field incidentally what happens if you don't hide your treasure in a field what happens to your treasure it gets stolen okay good tips for treasure care don't leave it lying around okay but if you bury it right it takes a seeker to find it are you with me Nobody just stumbles across treasure. You've got to actually be a seeker. So it's hidden. It's not on the surface. They found it. It's revealed only to the one who's seeking. No one who wasn't seeking a treasure found it. The treasure hunter found it. And it's so valuable that when he found it, in his joy, how beautiful is that? He went and sold all he had and bought that field. What's the message? The hidden kingdom, when found, will be worth giving up everything. The kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, will be worth giving up everything for. How amazing is that? Second parable, uh, third parable. Sorry, uh, does anyone know what this guy's up to? What he might be doing? Yes, killing fish. He's not killing fish, but that's a brilliant thought. Maybe if he stepped on one, he might be good. Good thinking, right? Yep, yeah, Doug, hard hat diver. Now he could be doing a whole variety of things, Doug. I'm sure you can tell us some that the Navy might do. This guy's not in the Navy. He is diving for pearls. And uh, the the helmet's worth about, uh, about, weighs about 30 kilos. His shoes are each worth 18 kilos each. And he's got additional weights on him because when you fill the helmet with air, it wants to float back up to the surface, right? When they first started doing this, they've been doing this for years and years. When they first started doing this on the surface, they'd have a hand-cranked pump to pump the air down to the bottom. You want to make sure your good mates are on that pump, I'm thinking, right? Okay? Because once you go down the bottom, you're not swimming back up very easily. Okay, so that's what's going on. Why be down there, down there for pearls? In Australia, we have some of the best pearls. They're growing up north in Broome. It is deadly dangerous. Okay? I think 28 people have died out of Broome collecting pearls. And one of them was only three years ago. It's deadly dangerous. Why, Why would you do it? Have a look at uh, at verses 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now today, we we grow pearls, we culture them. They're still rare, they're difficult to get, and they're highly prized. But we culture them. Does anyone know how you culture a pearl? Yeah. great work doug absolutely nacra is my word of the week incidentally fantastic i'm very excited about nacra i've done a lot of reading about it here's the thing though we insert you can insert shell in nature what happens is a bit of sand gets into this little bit of the inside of the oyster shell and it does the nacra thing and over time this incredibly rich and beautiful thing grows inside the oyster Pearls are amazing, they're so beautiful. But here's the thing. In ancient times, how much cultivation of pearls were going on? Just to let you know, none. How did you find them? You had to find them. They were incredibly rare. And when you found one, they were unbelievably valuable. I, I read through the week that uh, apparently a Roman uh, commander financed one of his military campaigns by selling one of his wife's earrings with a pearl on it. I'm sure things didn't work out very well at home after that, but, you know, whatever. Whatever. They're incredibly valuable, and even more valuable in Jesus's time. So, what do we learn in this story? What do we learn here? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. It's really interesting to see that the one who's doing the searching is a merchant. I love this part of the story. It's someone who would be professionally seeking pearls okay that's their job that's what that's what the merchant does secondly he finds pearls that are highly valued and so he has a professional eye this guy finds one he finds one pearl and he's prepared to do everything for it he's a professional he appraises it and he goes that pearl that pearl is worth everything and so what does he do he sold all he had he sold all he had and then what did he do he went and hocked it off on the market to the highest bidder he could find. No! And not what he did. I think this is radical. It was his personal joy and not profit that made him keep the pearl. Yeah? Cuz any other merchant who finds something will buy it and then sell it. But only the true the true merchant is the one who goes, "You know that painting? I'd sell everything I have for that." If you're the artist, Right? you the uh, the artistic collector you go that one that's worth everything sell everything else I've got I'm, I've got to own that one and it's going into my private treasury right so this guy keeps it for his own joy not for profit what's the point I think it's really simple the hidden kingdom hidden again this time in an oyster shell the hidden kingdom when found will be worth giving up everything so why is Jesus relevant again why is Jesus relevant? well i want to say to you perhaps a little bit controversially tonight perhaps he's not now perhaps for some of you here tonight he's not now relevant at all and i actually don't want to make a case to say let me roll out all the jesus benefits and persuade you he's super relevant i can tell you how relevant he's really relevant because i don't think jesus was interested in doing that and i think for some of you you might not think Jesus is relevant, and I don't want to twist your arm. Jesus wants to be found by seekers. He's not now, but he will be. He will be relevant for all of us. I want you to see the third picture that Jesus paints. Or is it the fourth one? Fourth one, I think. Uh, fishing. Does anyone here like fishing? I can't put your hands up a little bit higher. I think fishing's terrifying. I like the casting. I could do that all day my most terrifying moment is if I caught a fish I don't want to catch a fish I don't want to touch a fish I don't want to kill a fish I don't want to gut a fish I don't have anything to do with fish I don't know what a good fish is or what a bad fish is but professionals they get this stuff right Jesus tells us a parable about getting fish have a look at verses 47 to 50 once again he says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish when it was full the fishermen pulled it up on the shore then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this story is a parable with an explanation. Buckets of fish is the picture. We have a net that was let down. What are the points? Well, when the net was full, it was pulled up, not before. And I think this is actually quite interesting and a little bit scary. If you're a fish in the lake, do you know that the net has been let down? Not until it's pulled up. It's going to come up under you. It's going to grab you. But in the meantime, you're swimming along next to every other fish, aren't you? There's a time coming where the net will be pulled up. There are good fish, fish that are useful to the fishermen, and there are bad fish that are discarded as unfit. But the message is really shocking, I think. Jesus is saying that the end of the age will come. It'll come on you like a net on a fish swimming in the water. One day it'll be pulled up. Angels will do the dividing. Isn't this trippy? This isn't part of the analogy. This is the reality. Jesus says angels will do the dividing. What will they divide on? Wicked and righteous. The wicked will be separated from the righteous. And then just to make sure that we get The full weight of this parable, I think this message says very clearly that the suffering will will be ongoing. Have a look at verse 50 with me. Though we're thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's ongoing. How terrifying. See, Jesus is saying there's a day coming when whether you think I'm relevant or not relevant, the net's going to be pulled up where everyone's going to be split, left, right, righteous, wicked, everyone's going to be divided. On that day, where you stand with Jesus will be utterly relevant. And it won't be because he's cool or hip, it'll be because it's deciding your eternal destiny. I want to suggest to you tonight that Jesus is not irrelevant, incredibly relevant for each and every one of us here tonight. If that's true, what should we do with it? How do we work out what we should do with this truth? I think it's impossible for us to continue in apathy about Jesus. If fish and buckets are coming, you need to know what you're doing with Jesus now. Because it's not possible for the fish to have known in advance when the net would be pulled up. You can't continue in apathy, there's no net neutrality. Two things for us to consider. Some of us here will have made a decision about Jesus and some of us will still be deciding. Let me say to you, if you haven't yet made a decision about Jesus, get curious about the kingdom. Go find some treasure. Jesus wants to be found. He'll bear your investigation. Bring your adult mind to bear. Read him for yourself. Consider who he is. Come do Jesus for curious with us. Read the accounts yourself. Get curious for the kingdom. And then I want to say to those of you who are Christians... I want you to consider how productive your soil is. If God sowed the word in you, is it bearing fruit? Are you sowing the word elsewhere? Or are you just a seed that's got good soil and you've got a good bit of water going down and you're yet to poke your ear above the ground? I want you to consider how productive your soil is. If you're new, work out the kingdom. Or if you've been around for a while, be working out the kingdom right where you are. The necessary application. What must we do? This is one of the largest uh, circular pearls uh, that's um, been found. Uh, Big, big pearl. It's beautiful, right? I want you to consider tonight how you're valuing the kingdom. Is the kingdom for you sell everything important? And, And I don't literally mean that you come back next week and go, actually, I can't wait for supper because we've been living in a cardboard box and we haven't eaten since Sunday night. That's not what I'm intending. What I'm saying to you is, are you prepared to give up all the precious things because the kingdom is more precious? Now, that should be challenging. And I'll tell you why that matters. Your ability to give the message of new life in Jesus is proportional to the value you see in the kingdom. If you think the kingdom is a nice add-on to your otherwise excellent life, you'll tell other people like that. See if you can slot Jesus in around bunnings and kids' sport. bit orky this week? Don't worry. No no worry. Just come every third week. You'll be sweet. If Jesus is drop everything, sell everything, worth everything, guess what? You'll be an authentic communicator of the kingdom of God. And I want you to love him. I want you to find in this series as we continue to go through it a Jesus who's so worth it that you'd do anything to see others understand. Jesus is. I want to make the case he's awesomely relevant. Even if he made no effort in his own life to be seen as cool. What do you say? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your son Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, so that we might never face the fear of that furnace I pray, Heavenly Father, we take hold of him because we found in him our treasure, our pearl of great price. Father, I pray for those of us this evening who are yet to take hold of him, that they might seek and they might find him. Lord, have mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's a bit of stuff. Uh, We'd love to do Q&A. And uh, I suspect there might be some questions off these passages. Thank you, Jeff. That's very helpful. Uh, someone got a question to get us underway as we start to think about what to do with parables and Jesus and how relevant he is? Come on, you do, don't you? Comfortable with fish? Yeah, go, Damien. yeah good, good. So we, we covered this off at, at LifeGrip. I'm probably the prime example of, of parables and how they affect people. Um, I really struggled with the, the, the guy that found the treasure and then buried it. And, you know, if you think about the parable of the talents, you know, yeah. the guy that buried it, he got, he got in strife for burying his. And this guy buried it, but then it's, um, you know, it was considered a good thing later on because he sold everything so I want to thank you for explaining it about being seekers but I just more of a comment that I really struggled with that particular one on Wednesday night so is there anything else you might add around that or? yeah I think I think that's really helpful pa- parables aren't quite uh they're, they're a bit like um art. sorry <laughs> art <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right yeah I think so they're, a bit, they're also a bit like a, an Irish joke at some level you know right so um uh what's the latest Irish invention? You know, um, uh, fly screens in submarines, right? Okay? Ba-dum-tsh. Okay, and then you go, oh yeah, yeah, but, but wouldn't that be awkward? Like, wouldn't the water come in? You're like, no, 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 you're overthinking it, right? It's it's a single idea pithily expressed in a way you'll never forget. When we start going, this parable says that, and this parable says that, what what's going on? Like, why doesn't this parable and this parable sit together? Jesus isn't going. I'm, I'm trying to stitch every single one of my parables together. He's just telling stories that have a single meaning that's really helpful for us to get. And so I think that's helpful, mate. If you've been able to go, actually, it's okay. There's a there's a message in this one. This one here is, that, that, that this one is, value the treasure. And the hidden talents is, what's given to you, don't keep to yourself. They're two separate ideas, although burying is good in one and bad in the other. And so we go... What's going on, Jesus? Yeah. He's just going, no, I'm telling you two separate things. Yeah. Do good things with your talents. Treasure the kingdom of God. Makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Great. Yeah, really good. Someone else. Yeah, follow up.
1: Yeah. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, Steve. Uh, I'm just new, but uh, um, I've got a question that yeah. uh, we've been toiling with, uh, for some time, uh, just friends of ours. And, uh, it's about the, um, the seats and, mm. uh, uh, and my wife and I, Judith, uh, we've Hi, been Judith. sort of, uh, mixing about this too, where, uh, everyone's invited to the party and, um, but not everyone hears, you know, and, and I've been saying, well, he calls his own, you know, he calls his own people. And, yeah. And, um, are we to be elite? And uh, I'm saying, no, it's, we're just selected. Where does that come from? You know, the seeds at birth, you know, like, it's in there. You know, it's like that um, pearl, you know, as you explained, you know, it's in there. It's already in there at the start. So what happens to everyone else? How can they come to the party? And then it's like, no, they can't. Yep. Well, they can't hear. It's like singing a song, but you don't hear it.
0: I think that's really good. And, and if we stretch that question out, it gets to the question of predestination, I think. Okay? Is that right? Is that, are you hearing that, that question? Yeah. It gets to the question of predestination. Here's what I'd say to you on that. Predestination is designed to encourage the hearts of the saints not confuse them. It's designed to encourage the hearts of the saints, not confuse them. When we hear the words predestination, we start wrapping ourselves in our arms and rocking ourselves going, oh, predestination, I hate this conversation, I hate this conversation. When it occurs, what it's supposed to do is to say, God loves you, he chose you, he has an eternal destiny for you, and you will survive. Be there at the end. That's what it's designed to do. What we make it do is, are you predestined? Are you predestined? How will I know if you're predestined? But if I'm talking to them, we freak our brains out with predestination. Okay, here's what I'd say, and I want to say this carefully. Okay, I would say predestination is practically irrelevant when I'm looking at others, but personally encouraging when I look to myself. Explain what I mean. When I and I use this all the time. When I meet someone who I've never met before and I want to talk to them about Jesus, I figure I don't know what your destiny is. I can't see your predestination on the outside of you. Do, do you get me? I can't see who's predestined. And so, if I decide that I won't share the word with you because I think you're not predestined, who is going to be in trouble at that point? Me look up Ezekiel 18 and have a look for the watchman it's my fault if I don't share the word with you but I take it even more encouragingly than that if I'm sharing the word with Andy and I've never met him before I'm going is a good chance in God's mercy Andy's chosen I don't know otherwise so I'm going to share the word with him because I can't wait to see the spirit of God take the word of God apply it to his heart and save him So when when I go door knocking, if I'm talking to people in public, I go, I don't know who's chosen. So I'm going to throw the word out there and let God reveal the predestination rather than I fret about it myself. Do, Do you see? So I will talk to everyone about the word because I think everybody, as far as I can tell, has the chance. Now I know some are chosen and some are not. But since I don't know and since they don't know, I'll appeal to them and say, please give your life to Jesus. Don't be so hard-hearted. Today is a great day to get saved. Have I said that to you before? Today's a great day to get saved, okay? And so I'd say to everybody, don't fret your predestination. Don't fret the predestination of people around you. But if you know you've chosen Jesus, take great heart in your predestination because there's a place prepared for you, which Jesus has got your name written in his book of life. Do you see? So I'd say in practice is, invite all your friends around, okay? Don't sweat whether they're in or they're out keep speaking the word of God to them and praying like crazy that they give up their rebellion and sin and repent and take him as their Lord and Savior. Does this make sense? So I want to encourage your hearts. Okay, I guess that's what I want to say. Predestination shouldn't freak us out, should encourage us and go out there with boldness because some are chosen. I want to go find them. Anyone with me? Cool. I think it's a really good question. If you want to come back to me afterwards, I'm happy to chat over supper. Is there one more question? Uh, over here, two more. We've got a little bit of time. Yeah, Nicole. I I want to stay on the excitement of let's go after them, but I still can't help but think, why does why did God make people and not choose them? Yeah. Are they just to, for fillers or? Yeah, uh, I think that uh, I think that question. Um, is at its heart the reason that we don't like this as a concept. Here's here's what I'll I'll read to you. Um, I read this with the guys doing the partnership course this afternoon. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. I mean, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, But everyone to come to repentance. I think it was Karl Barth who said, I hope and pray that hell is empty. What do I know from my father's heart? He sent his son to die that we might be made right with him. What does it say here? He wants everyone to come to repentance. I hope the category of hard-hearted rebellion is empty on the final day. Okay? And if, in God's plan, there are people who are sent to hell, and there must be, I assume, given the hardness of heart I see around me, the fact that it breaks my heart to think that there are people there should tell me that it breaks my Father's heart. Otherwise, what we create is, I'm more moral than my God. Do you see? God, how could you, is really us saying, God, I won't let you do something that I don't think is okay. And the implicit, uh, you're just callously cutting them off. And I think on the contrary, I think we see on the cross that God desperately wants everyone to be saved. Yeah? Yeah? We're good? Okay. Um, it, it's, uh, th- these are deep waters, aren't they, guys? And the fact that Jesus speaks in parables is pretty crazy because he could have just said, hey, guys, get with the program. I'm son of God. Repent. You'll be saved forever. I'm going to do some stuff on the cross. It'll work out really great. Just bear with me. Not at all what he did. Not desperate for relevance to hard, stubborn hearts, revealing the beauty of the kingdom to seekers who will treasure it. Let's be those people.